That was a great song. Ephesians chapter 2, verse, start at verse 11. As we continue our steady march through Ephesians, <clears throat> verse 11 says, therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. I was talking to a, a guy, who's, I guess I call him a quasi-Buddhist, a couple of months ago, and he asked me a question. He said, if there's one Jesus, then why are there so many different denominations? It's <clears throat> a good question. The disunity of the church discredits the message of the church. Uh, as Max Lucado said, um, uh, I, th I think he put it really well. He said, there are many adrift on the sea of life who are afraid to climb on board the ship of the church because they don't want to get caught in a fistfight between two sailors. Uh, and so, you know, people look at the church and they say, why so, many, why so many denominations? Why so many churches? I thought there's one Jesus. Can't you, you guys at least get it together? And it's not only just our outreach to unbelievers. I think it's also uh, us as believers. We feel the grief of being a divided church. As we think about... Uh, denominational rivalries and rifts and mistrust between churches and even conflicts within the church. Our hearts are grieved because we know it's not supposed to be this way. Uh, there's a band called Tool and they have an awesome song. It's called Schism. And it's, it's a song about uh, grieving over brokenness in friendships. Uh, or, or really, I think it's a romantic relationship in the song. But, but the idea is, you know, I know that this relationship should work. I know it can work. So why isn't it working? Uh, one of the, the opening lines from their song is, I know the peace is... I'm not going to sing it because I don't have <laughs> funky music to distort my voice. I know the pieces fit, I watch them fall away. Or another one, I know the pieces fit because I watch them tumble down. And as I, whenever I hear that song, I sometimes think of, of the church and broken relationships I know of. And I think, yeah, it should work. I know the pieces should fit together. The church shouldn't be like this. And yet it is. And our, our hearts are broken as believers. And so today we come to this passage about the unity of the church. And I think it's a great passage. It, it teaches us some fundamental lessons about the nature of the church's unity. And I think it also points us the way forward for experiencing greater unity as a church. How can we overcome the brokenness we see in the body of Christ? 
Just by way of background, let's look at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time, you, speaking of Gentiles, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Before the coming of Christ, there was a great chasm, a great rift between Jews and Gentiles. They lived at a distance apart because of this, this chasm that opened up between them. In fact, if you'll take out your sermon notes for a minute, this insert in your bulletin that says Ephesians 2, 14 to 18 at the top. Look at your sermon notes. There was hostility and enmity between Jew and Gentile. There was a cultural division between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, we think of circumcision. Only the Jews practiced circumcision in the time of Christ. The rest of the Greeks and Romans looked at the Jews like, You're, what is wrong with you? That's barbaric. And they didn't practice it. And that, that cultural difference was huge between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, it was so great that the Jews could call themselves collectively the circumcision and everyone else the uncircumcision, like we saw in verse 11. Uh, it was also a religious division. The Jews worshipped one God. The Greeks worshipped a whole pantheon of gods. And so the Greeks looked at the Jews and said, why are you stuck on this one God? You know, Why not cover the bases? Uh, you know, play it safe. Everyone worships multiple gods. And the Jews looked at the Greeks and said, why do you worship all these gods that aren't gods? There's only one God. And so there was a religious divide between the two. And ultimately there was a spiritual division. Jews and Gentiles were divided spiritually because... The Jews knew that God had chosen them. They, were, they had a special relationship with God. God had chosen Israel out of all the nations. So there was Israel, and then there were the nations. And there was a spiritual divide. The Jews were God's people. The nations weren't. <clears throat> and so because of this, there was a great chasm and a rift. But with the coming of Christ, something unprecedented, unimaginable, completely surprising has taken place. And we see it there in verse 11. We studied this last week, do you remember? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in His flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. So something incredible has happened. With the coming of Christ, Jew and Gentile, the two, have become one. So that there is now one people of God, those who are in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. There's this amazing uh, bringing together of, of the most separated people, Jew and Gentile. I mean, you can't have a more separated people than that. I think even in our country, the rift historically between um, white and black is a huge rift that there were countries trying to put back together because of our history. But even that is not as big as between Jew and Gentile to try to put this in perspective. The religious, cultural, and historical hostilities between the two have been bridged in Christ. So that there is now one new person in Christ. In fact, look back at the text. This is amazing. It's not just that He brought them together. Look at verse 15. His purpose was to create in Himself one new man out of the two. 
There's a new creation taking place. It's not just that Christ took the Gentiles and brought them into Judaism. Nor is it the case that Jesus took the Jews and had them shake off their Judaism and bring them into the Gentile world. Nor did Jesus sit down and broker some kind of deal, some kind of merger between Jews and Gentiles, so he had some kind of amalgam and merger between the two. He did something completely new. A new creation. Just as God spoke and the worlds came into existence, so the Word of God, Jesus Christ, has been spoken, and now a whole new race, in a sense, has come into existence. So in a sense, there are now three peoples on the face of the earth. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and then there's the people of God, which are Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ. There is one people of God today. You've got to get clear about this. Not two. There's one people of God. It's everybody in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. And so now God has one people. It's a new creation. In a sense, Adam, uh, Jesus is the second Adam. And from him there is a new human race. But it's not a human race that's based upon ethnicity or um, genetic lineage. This new race in Christ is a spiritual race. It's all those who have faith in Christ, all those who have the Holy Spirit in them through faith in Christ. So there's a third race on the face of the earth. In other words, God's plan for all the brokenness in the world and all of the rifts between people, whether it's um, rifts between uh, cultures or nations or business partners or rifts in families, God's solution is the church. You think about that. God's solution to all the brokenness in the world is the church. It is in the church that he is putting together a new humanity, Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, young and old, single and married, Yankees and Southerners, um, skiers and snowboarders, <laughs> uh, PC and Apple, you know, all the different people in the world, Cohasidites, Hingamites, Holites, Weymouthites, Duxburyites, Braintreeites, all these different tribes around on the South Shore <laughs> with all their different cultures and identifiers. And, you know, they're all now one. I mean, how many different people are represented here in this church this morning? How many different towns? It's amazing. You'd be surprised. All the way up to Quincy, some of you down from Plymouth and Duxbury. You know, what brings us together? It's Christ. And so there's a new humanity being created. That's God's solution to the brokenness in the world, is the church. So, why doesn't it work that way? <laughs> so why is the church so divided? What's wrong with this picture, right? Why is it that there are so many denominations? Why is it that we could all probably tell stories of divisions and fights and brokenness in churches? Uh, we, we've all probably experienced that. We can all tell examples of conflict between brothers and sisters in Christ that has ripped the church apart. I was thinking about uh, the church I grew up in out in Las Vegas. Uh, I, I love this church. It's where I became a Christian. It's where I got baptized as a Christian. It's where I grew in my faith and I was taught the Bible. It's where I, I was trained in ministry, in the youth ministry. And it's where I received my call to go into pastoral ministry and began to receive that. And yet, I, I, uh, that church back home in the past couple of years has had a big uh, brouhaha, and, and there was some big fight. They had a young pastor with lots of energy and ideas, and they had sort of an old-school core of the church. And you can look at that, and you could say, wow, that's a great possibility. Energy plus wisdom. 
wow, it could work so well together. But it did the opposite. It went, and I don't know all the details. You know what? I don't want to know all the details. But I'm just grieved because that's my church. Born again. That was it. And so I just look at that. And the thing that comes to my mind is, it's just such a waste. It's just such a waste. So much could have been done. And in, in, during the time when churches fight, or people in churches fight, or whatever, basically what it is is just a big waste of time. Because during that six months, one year, year and a half, two years, essentially what happens is there's no gospel ministry going on outside the church because the church turns its energies inward and it's just a waste for the kingdom and Satan's you know, loving it because for that time the light is kind of going inward and it's being hid under a bushel and the gospel isn't going out as vibrantly as it could. So we see that and we, we grieve and we say, oh God, this is not how it's supposed to be. So why is it? How can the church become one? Well, in some ways, it's kind of a bad question. We need to reframe the question. The church is one. Okay, that's the thing. It is one. In fact, look back at our text. I mean, he's saying he's created one new man out of two. The issue isn't how can the church become one. The church is one. The question is how does the church live out its unity? Maybe that's a better way to put it. How does the church put into practice what it actually is? Whether it lives up to it or not, that's what we are. Sort of like brothers and sisters. They're in the same family. You know, it's, it's not how do they become a family. We are a family. The question is, how do we live like it? How do we put it into action? It's probably a better way to frame the question. Look at chapter 4 of Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body. There is one spirit. Just as you were called the one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there is one church. There's God's people. All those who are in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, uh, young or old, whoever you are, if you're in Christ, you're one in Christ. But then look at verse 3. Jump back to verse 3. Right before saying that, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Isn't that interesting? He's like, you're one, and so you've got to work at it. Paul knows, even to the people to whom he's writing, that they had to work at living out, expressing, putting into practice, the church be unified. We are unified in Christ. It's how do we live it out. And, and so this, this is the struggle that we have as Christians. How do we put this into practice? And I think the answer is we have to look to the source of the unity. In other words, find out how it is in the first place. That, how did Jew and Gentile become one in the first place? Find out how that happened, what the source of the unity is, and then stay focused on that and stay there. It's when the church starts wandering off from the source of its unity that it gets into problems. And so uh, we look at our text. What is the source of the church's unity? How did this great unification between Jew and Gentile take place? Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Of chapter 2. Chapter 2, 14. He himself is our peace. Jesus Christ is the source of the church's unity. In fact, I want you to do this. Uh, take a pencil. There's some in the pew rack in front of you. And I just want you to do some underlining in your Bibles. Maybe you're using a pew Bible. I don't care. Just write in it. It doesn't matter to me. Underline these verses. All right, so take your pencil. What I want to do is I just want to read through verses 14 to 18, and I want you to underline every time it points out that it's in Christ himself that this unity has taken place. All right, you ready? So let's go back to verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, underline that. 
You who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Underline that. So twice he says it's through Christ this unity takes place. Then verse 14. For he himself is our peace. Underline that. Who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh. (laughs) Underline that. It's in his flesh, the law with the commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself, underlined, one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God, underlined through the cross. That's how it takes place. By which, uh, uh, verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away, peace to those who are near. For, underlined, through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. I mean, how many more times can he say it? It's through Christ. You know, <laughs> how could we miss that? It's, so, it's overemphasized. In fact, between verses 13 and 17, or 18, the only place it doesn't appear is in verse 17. And sometimes it appears twice in a verse. That Paul's just driving home, pounding it into us, that the unity we have is in Christ. He himself is our peace. So it's not that Jesus, he is the peace. And it's as we come to Christ that the unity takes place. Specifically, how did Christ make peace between Jew and Gentile? Well, we see here in the text, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one. And how did he do it? He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. So the first thing that Christ did on the cross was he destroyed the horizontal barrier that separates Jews and Gentiles. He abolished the law of Moses. In other words, the Old Testament law, the thing that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, is no longer the way that God relates to people today. This is not how God enters into relationships with people. That's how he did it before Christ. It was the old, the old covenant. Uh, God made a covenant with Moses and with Israel. He said, this is my covenant. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And here are the laws and stipulations that you have to obey. And from the get-go, Israel failed. And down through its history, they didn't obey the covenant, and eventually the covenant was declared broken. And so there was a need for a new covenant to take place with new laws and new stipulations. In fact, look at the bottom of page two in the sermon notes, or page one. This is Jeremiah 31, a prophecy in the Old Testament. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So even in the Old Covenant, when that was broken, falling apart, God in His mercy was talking about a new covenant. And when Christ died on the cross, He was the sacrifice of the new covenant. There's a new relationship taking place. Remember what Jesus said in the Last Supper? He took the cup of wine. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He was establishing a new covenant. So that means the Old Covenant under Moses is done. That we don't relate to God that way. And so, circumcision, done. Sabbath keeping, done. Dietary laws, done. Whatever it is that, that identified Jews as Jews, 
under the old covenant is set aside. Not that those things were bad, but covenant is not circumcision. It is the circumcision of the heart through the Holy Spirit. The sign of those who are God's people now is not some ethnic or cultural identity of Jewishness. It's now everyone in Christ who has the Holy Spirit. So there's a new person, a new identity. That old wall just got knocked down. There wasn't anything bad with it. The problem was people couldn't keep the law. And so God had to do something different. So he, he broke the horizontal barrier, but he also broke the vertical barrier that separated us from one another and from God. Look at verse 15. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in his one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. The ultimate problem is that we're not reconciled to God. The reason there are any disruptions in human relationships can ultimately be traced back to the fact that we're disrupted from God. And if, if the law is what separated Jew and Gentile, what is it that separates us from God? Sin. Sin separates us from God. And so Jesus on the cross, through the cross, died for sinners to save them. Because both Jews and Gentiles are sinners, and both needed their sins forgiven through the cross. That's important. A Jewish person without Christ is as lost as a Gentile without Christ. Without Christ, you're lost. And so Christ comes and He bridges a gap. He not only bridges a gap between Jew and Gentile, He also bridges a gap between heaven and earth through the cross. And He reconciles us to God so that now through the death of Christ on the cross, anybody can come to God. The doors have been blown wide open. I don't care who you are. I don't care what's in your past. I don't care what mistakes you've made in your life. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, I don't care if you have a prison record. I don't care if you've been into drugs. Maybe you are into drugs. Whatever, you know, if you think of it, you know, like Seth was praying this morning, I don't care if Saddam Hussein snuck into our building this morning. If he would just come to Christ, he would be saved and forgiven, and he would be your brother. You know, that's spooky. But if he came to Christ, he would be your brother. It's radical. That's basically what happened with the Apostle Paul. He was a radical persecutor of the church, and then he became a Christian. And none of the Christians want to hang out with him because they're like, but that's Paul. You know, is, is this some secret you know, uh, attack where he's going to pretend to be one of us for a while and then start persecuting us? No, no, no. He became one of them. Anyone in Christ, no matter who you are, if you come to Christ, you will be saved and reconciled to God. The only thing that's keeping anyone from God right now is our own stubborn heart. Anyone in God, any Jew, any Gentile, any Kohasidite, Hingamite, whoever you are, come to Christ and be saved and be reconciled to God. The doors are just blown wide open for anyone to come to Christ. And so this is God's plan to create a new supernatural community of unity brought to, bringing together Jews and Gentiles, reconciling them, and doing it through the death of Christ on the cross. That through the cross, the horizontal barrier of the law has been kicked over and the vertical barrier of our sins have been taken away through the cross. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. And so the chasm between Jew and Gentile is bridged the chasm between heaven and earth is bridged. And now the church comes as God's new people of unity. And so this, I think, is how we need to move forward as a church to experience greater unity. How is it then that we can live this unity out? And the answer is you've got to keep focused on the source, which is Jesus Christ. When we get our eyes off Jesus Christ, that's when the church gets into trouble. You know, uh, I've been trying to teach my kids how to play baseball 
So I got this wiffle ball and bat, and uh, my six-year-old daughter and my four-year-old son go down to the basement, and we play a little wiffle ball. It's kind of crazy because when they hit the ball, it you know, bounces all over, but it's fun. And, uh, you, you know, if you ever try to teach a kid how to play baseball, first you give them the stance, you show them how to hold the bat, you know, and they always have it backwards or something. So you give them the bat, and then you choke up. You know, he's like, choke up. They don't know what you're talking about, so you teach them how to do that. And they, you know, they put the bat over their shoulder, and you tell them to get their elbow up and look at you. It's finally you sort of get them in the stance. And you know if you're a parent, you've ever taught them this. And you, you step back with the wiffle ball or whatever, and you say, okay, what do you say? Keep your eye on the ball. And you throw the ball. And my daughter, she's six years old. She has this down. When I say keep your eye on the ball, and I throw her the pitch, I mean, she's amazing. She's just like, you know, I throw the ball. Bang! Right, you know, and it boom, goes by my head, and it's bouncing off there, and, and she's just smiling and sends another one, two, and she just one after another, boom, boom, boom. And uh, this is great preaching with a bat. I love this. Um, <laughs> just, hmm. um, let's preach about hell, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, my, my daughter just, she just cracks him across the room. My four year old son, he doesn't really get it yet. <sighs> And I, I'm okay with that, that my son can't hit the ball yet. That's okay. I'm, I'm cool with that. But, you know, he stands there, brings up the bat, he looks at me, and I say, with a big smile on his face. And then he must see the ball out of his peripheral vision as it comes by. Because as the ball sort of gets near him, he kind of goes like this. I'm like, oh. You know, and, and once, once every 10 or 15 pitches, he'll randomly hit it. And he'll be like, yay! And I'll be like, thank you! You know, <laughs> thank you. Uh, it, and, and I was thinking, that that's how it is in the church. We've got to keep our eyes on the ball, which is Christ. And when we get our eyes off Christ, that's when the church starts, you know, swinging lame and missing big time. That's when we start breaking apart. When we start putting our eyes on preachers, when we start putting our eyes on a particular church or its method of ministry, when we start putting our eyes on a particular program, or most common is when we start putting our eyes on ourselves, <laughs> that's when the church starts missing. We've got to keep our eyes on Christ. And when we're focused on Christ, there is a power in Him to bring the church to what it should be. And when it happens, it's so beautiful. I believe this is the secret for unifying Christians across denominational lines. That this is what we have to do. That if there's any two churches that are in Christ, we've got to stay focused on Christ and, and bring that together. There, there are theological differences that separate a church into different denominations. And you know what? That's probably going to be that way until Jesus returns. I'm not trying to be a pessimist. I'm just being realistic. Uh, you know, I'm a Calvinist. I think you guys probably figured that out by now. <laughs> I, I believe Calvinism... Can you even say this today? I believe it's right. In fact, I'll go far and say, I believe Arminianism is wrong, that it's unbiblical. In fact, I'll even say Arminianism is detrimental to churches. I believe that. That it's wrong-headed, and I would love to sit down and argue it with you if you want to. But, but, if there is an Arminian pastor or an Arminian church that is in Christ, then that's my brothers and sisters. And I will worship with them. I will pray with them. I will fellowship with them and I will enter into gospel partnership with them for the advancement of the name of Christ. I will. Because I'm one with them and even though their theology is, is tweaked and they need to get it fixed, you know, from my perspective, 
You know, but, but I'm not going to say, well, they're not believers and I can't follow. We're one in Christ. And so we better live it out. And, and I'm going to try to find as many ways as I can to connect with those people. And, and hopefully they'll be patient with me as they try to convert me out of my you know, stale old Calvinism. You know, the real question is, why did God predestine some to be Arminians? I really wrestle with that, <laughs> that you think about that one. I'm a, I believe it's incorrect and unbiblical. I do. It, it's not in the Bible. You know, show it to me. You can't find it there. And I think that it's detrimental to the church to practice infant baptism, that it, it hurts the church. But if there is an infant baptizing church that is in Christ and that, that truly believes in Him, and, and the preacher is in Christ, and the people worshiping Christ, I'm their brothers and sisters, and I'm going to share a bunk bed with them in heaven, you know? And so... I'm going to worship with them. I'm going to pray with them. I'm going to fellowship. I'm going to try to find as many ways as I can to build those bridges. And maybe we can have conversations about infant baptism. You know, that's fine. But uh, somehow we have to hold that together as Christians. The fact that we are one in Christ. And I think that that's, that's the way for moving forward. Now, do I think that somehow we're going to solve all the problems and we're going to become one big denomination? You know, with one big organizational structure with, you know, me on the top of it? You know, no, I don't think so. As nice as that sounds. Uh, but, but can we do better as a church? I think we can do better. <laughs> I think we can do better than we have been doing. And, and I think I can do better as a minister, and, and we can do better as Baptists to, to reach across to people with whom we are one in Christ, whether we want to admit it or not. If they're in Christ and we're in Christ, we're one. But I think it's also uh, the case that, that this is the way forward for interpersonal relationships with other believers. Uh, I have had, and I'm sure you've had too, conflicts, disagreements, fights with other believing Christians. You, you know they're a believer. Uh, should, you think they are. And, and you've been in this conflict, and, and I've had this happen. What's the way forward? How can you reconcile believers? And, you know, what, is there a path here? And I think the answer is the same. It's to keep our focus on Christ. Because when conflict happens in the church, not if, when, <laughs> when it happens, because it will happen, we're so different, it's going to happen. We're going to have run-ins over theological differences. We're going to have personality differences. You're going to serve on a committee with someone, they're just going to do it differently. You're going to be an engineer, and they're going to be a visionary, you know, or whatever, and you're just going to see life differently, and you're going to butt heads, and it's going to be difficult. That just happens in churches. So, so what do we do when that happens? How do, we, how do we move forward? And again, I don't have the magic answer to solve everything, but I think that the beginning place and the place we have to stay is Christ, to unify our hearts in Christ and to see ourselves as one in Christ. The most important thing you can bring to a conflict between you and other believers or believer is the right heart attitude. It's the most important thing you can bring to any conflict is the right heart attitude. If two believers or parties or whatever the conflict is have the right heart attitude before Christ, I believe amazing things can happen. But if they don't, it doesn't matter if you have the world's best negotiator sitting down at the table with them. It's just going to be games. You have to have the right heart. And the heart is Christ. To have more of Christ in our hearts. Look at the sermon notes. Just sort of close with this kind of practical stuff. How do we develop unity between believers? And again, I'm not pretending to be able to solve all the world's problems. But I think the starting place is our hearts have to be right. And getting our hearts right includes at least four things. The prayer, search my heart, O God. We have to start by 
going back to that vertical relationship with God and saying, God, show me my faults. If there's something in me, I need you to show it to me and pinpoint it so I can repent. And not just say, God, show me my faults. Okay, thanks, there's none. You know, and I'm done. But, but this is an, sort of an ongoing openness. The reality is, people, start, and I mean myself here, have such a hard time seeing their faults. It just doesn't happen naturally. It's so easy to assume that, that we're in the right. And I do it so naturally. And so as I work through discussions with people or, or tensions or whatever, I have to continue to pray, all right, God, show me my faults. Help me be quick to accept them. Because what happens in conflicts is you get this polarization. And when polarization happens, people you know, get more and more defensive and, and you start getting more and more conflictual and uh, pugilistic. And, and that makes it difficult to say, well, this is why I'm wrong. Because you don't want someone else to take advantage of you admitting your faults. It, you, know, you know how it works. So we need to pray, search my heart, O God. Second, we need to submit ourselves to Christ. By this I mean, Christ, I'm willing to do whatever you say. The danger in conflict is, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience, is that when I get hurt by somebody, I then tend to feel justified to respond however I want. So it's sort of like, well, I'm entitled to do whatever because look what they did. And therefore, now my actions sort of are, are all moral, no matter what they are. And so I have to say, all right, Christ, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to say. But what is it that you want me to do, Lord Jesus Christ? So that even if in this conflict the other person never comes around or they never humble their self before God, at least I can say, God, I honored you as best as I could. And I submitted myself to you. Lord Jesus, how do you want me to respond to, to your glory? And then the third S, I'm doing S's here. Search my heart, O God. Submit yourself to Christ. And then number three, see your unity in Christ. In other words, affirm before God in prayer that you are in fact one people. That goes a long way to changing your attitude. To see that person with whom I'm, I'm having attention or, or groups of people or whatever it is and say, they are one with me in Christ. They are one. So they're my family members. I've got to figure out how to put this together. And then finally, supplications for the other person. <clears throat> Just have a little 33 at the end of person. What is that all about? I don't know. You only pray 33 times, then you're done. I don't know why that's there. Pray for the other person. And don't just pray, God, help them to get straightened out and see that I'm right. I mean, we're talking about, you know, typically, there's some, everyone's got stuff going on in their life. Try to think of what it is that person's struggling with, and then say, God, help them with that. You know, Lord, I, I know that their grandfather is sick. Pray for the grandfather. Whatever you have to do, and that will radically change the way you see that other person. And then with your heart in the right place, reach out and, and, and start taking the steps toward making peace. And even if that doesn't work, or maybe that other person isn't there, even if it takes a long time, at least you know that before God, your heart is in the right place, which is the most important thing, to honor God with our own lives, and then to take steps beyond that. There's a story told about D.L. Moody the great evangelist. It says, Once when Moody was preaching, he saw a man in the audience with whom he had had a disagreement. Immediately he stopped preaching and announced a hymn. Then while everyone was standing up and singing, Moody stepped down from the pulpit and went up to the man. He put his arm around him and he said, Will you forgive me? I'm sorry for what I said. And the man forgave him. Then Moody returned to the pulpit, had everybody sit down, 
and began preaching with new power, all because he took God's word seriously. That's amazing. And I think that that power is for us in the church if, if we will strive to be God's unified people. I'm under no illusions that we're going to all be one perfectly unified people this side of heaven. But gosh, we've got to strive for it. And I believe as we take those little steps of obedience and faith in Christ, he will unleash a power upon us that will be disproportionately larger than anything we've done by faith to respond to him. And that God will do fresh things through the church. Let's pray. Lord, I just confess my failure to be a unifying person. I confess my failure, Lord, to be your unified. might work in my heart a new humility, a new repentance, a new desire, God, to be unified with other believers, even with whom I, I may disagree with theologically and, and really come to, to sharp disagreement about what the Bible has to say about different doctrines. But Lord, I pray that in all of it there might be love, I guess that's it, God. Fill our hearts up with love. You have loved us despite the fact that we were sinners. Lord, help us to love one another. Fill our hearts up with such grace that we would overflow with grace to one another. And God, we pray this not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of the gospel on the South Shore and beyond. For the sake of your gospel being preached so that people may see that we are truly your disciples by our love. And Lord, we... We just open up our hands and say, God, give this to us because we can't manufacture it. We can't get ourselves to this place by hard work. We need you to pour out your spirit and your grace upon us. So, Lord, we just wait, and we are eager to see what you'll do among us. Thank you for this word. In Christ's name, amen.